today is the fourth part of a series on God's holiness. And so, so far we focused on, we focused on God is holy, is God's holiness. We focused on our sin. We focused on the punishment for sin, which is hell. And so today I want to start from the beginning a little bit. I'm probably going to uh, expedite through this a little bit. I might skip through some slides a little bit. But today we want to look through that. We want to kind of start from the beginning. We're going to recover some of the same ground again and then um, come to what I believe really is the climax of the biblical story. And that's that the Son of God sacrifices himself for the sins of mankind to bring into relationship between the, the sinless, pure, holy God and the rebellious creation. And so if you can imagine with me, if you can imagine with me, something is largely unimaginable. That the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, abiding in perfect unity, in ultimate glory, pure and perfect, existing in glory unseen, never experienced by anyone or anything outside of the Trinity, unparalleled with no competition for that glory. Nothing could even begin to compare to it. And if we can fathom that, that there's no other creation as of yet at this place. So if you, if you work with me, I'm starting before the front of our Bible. I'm talking about before creation. It is just God in himself, totally encapsulated, totally self-sufficient because he is totally self-sufficient. If we can fathom that before creation, God existed as God, satisfied as God, and no need of anything, and no need for the sun because the brilliance of his glory outshines the sun. No need for the gravity to hold the galaxy together because he is in it all. He's created it all. He holds everything together. It, I mean, gravity is something he made to hold it all together. He's the one that holds it all together to begin with. There's no need for oxygen or sustenance or water because he's totally sustaining, self-sustaining. With these winged creatures around his throne constantly crying out, holy, 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 every minute of every day of every year. And yet, <laughs> he's outside of time. And there are no minutes, days, or years for him because he's eternal. Then think of Genesis. And we see God in this creative burst where he speaks the universe into existence. He speaks the galaxies into existence. He speaks the stars and the sun and the moon into existence with the breath. I don't even know if he has breath. I don't know. But, like, he did it. He didn't work for it. He didn't need the right materials for it. He didn't have to go to Lowe's three times to do it. He he spoke it, and it happened. The, creati the creativity for the stars and the planets and the animals are not inspired from anything or anyone apart from himself. It was in some way his own expression and reflection of his beauty. Psalm 19 says that creation declares the glory of God, and, all scri and, and Scripture teaches us that all that he created throughout Genesis, those first few chapters, again and again and again, it says, and it was good. And finally, the fullest expression is creativity. His glory is the man, the creation of man. And so in Genesis 1.26, it just says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Can you imagine if you're the angels and you say, he's going to make man? 
something in his image? What would that be? What would that look like? And the angels, I believe, had to be sitting on the edges of their seats that they sit or flapping their wings, whatever. They were waiting for what this was going to look like. In verse 27 of chapter 1, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Verse 31, he says, And God saw all that he had made. And behold, it was not good. It was very good. Amen. Chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. And he didn't do this with anything else. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Genesis goes on to tell us of the creation uh, of the companion for man and women. And the perfect dwelling place for men and women. And the total freedom to live in that place with one exception to not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And man lived in perfect unity. Again, we speak about things we cannot fathom. We use vocabulary that is insufficient for what we're trying to talk about. And man lived in unity with an intimacy, with fellowship, with God that we cannot comprehend. They talked to each other. They could hear him move. They experienced him in a way that to the best of our understanding, no other man or woman has ever, ever, ever experienced him ever since. But to experience God fully, and for what I believe, but for, for God, for, to experience God fully, for man to experience God fully, and then what I believe is for God to experience man fully, he gave man free will. See, because one can only truly express real love and devotion if one has the option, the ability to choose rejection as well. God did not create another tree that would just clap at his presence because that was what it was made to do. He made man whose expression of love and devotion back to the creator was unlike anything else he'd done because that man had the ability to reject the creator as well. True love is most readily experienced when we know that they don't have to love us. So he gave man free will. And that is like giving man the secret code to the nuclear bombs that were wired to destroy the utopian creation because they used that secret code and did just that. They destroyed the perfection in their rebellion to want to have the authority over their own life. They violated God's holiness. And when he placed them in the garden, he said that violating that one rule, that one thing, only one thing, only one thing, would result in death, separation from God. So breaking God's law required justice and punishment. So God removed them from his presence. Sin entered the DNA, not of mankind, but of all creation. All creation suffered. And creation turned on itself 
and hate entered the world, and guilt and shame immediately consumed the man and the woman. And from that moment through the, throughout all time in history, mankind has strived to eliminate the stain of his sin, the stench of his guilt, the pervasive shame of his experience. Death and pain became the norm for this wounded, broken creation. And God's holiness... Violated by man resulted in the corruption of man's life, the demand for justice for breaking God's law, and man was found to be unable in himself to atone for his sin. One could think that the epitome of God's glory would be his sinless perfection. One would think that the epitome of God's glory would be his sinless, perfect, harmonious creation. And yet it wasn't. The climax of God's glory was still to come. Scripture says that all the angels waited to see what happened next. And the holy God, transcendent and separate from all creation, offended by the sin of mankind, still wants a relationship with man still wants his people to know him, still wants to pour love and mercy and benevolence upon them. This would seem to be the epitome of God's glory. Psalm 103 says that, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love. I mean, pause. Selah. Contemplate. Consider what he's saying. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love. Toward those who fear him, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. That would seem to be the epitome. God's glory there is magnified when man screams in his face and rejects him. And yet, as we just read, the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. How does he demonstrate this great compassion for his rebellious creation? You know, keep in mind what we're talking about. That the holy, separate Glorious God made a creation that was perfect and, whole, and perfect in and of itself that rebelled against him and said, I do not want your influence. I do not want your authority. Walk away from me. And God says, I still will not give up on you. I still will not give up on you. I still want you. 
But the problem is now is that in our sin and in our rebellion, we've created this chasm that we talked about a few weeks ago. We've created this chasm between him and us that cannot be bridged, that cannot go back and forth. And so something has to fill that chasm. And what fills that chasm is the justice of God, is that sin must be punished. That fills the chasm. So who can do that? You know the answer, no one. No one can. And so what man cannot provide for himself, God, in his supreme love, provides it for the man. Payment for his sin. When man can't pay his tab, God pays it for him. And so Paul stated in Romans 5, 6 through 8, he says, When we were utterly helpless, with no way to escape, Christ came at just the right time. And died for us sinners who had no use for him. Pay attention to what Paul's saying here. Pay attention to, to what's happening here. That does not say that when we were utterly helpless and we were dying for a way to get out and we were looking for God, we found Jesus and we embraced him. It says that Jesus came and died for us when we had no use for him, no interest in him. We're not looking for him. He came and he died for us. God sent his son to pay that penalty for rebellious creation that didn't really want it. So even if we were good, we really wouldn't expect anyone to die for us. Though, of course, that might be barely possible. So in other words, even if we're really good, we wouldn't expect someone to die for us. Even though that might happen, you don't expect it to. But God showed his great love for us by sending Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners. So finally, the glory of God is exalted, is on full display for all of creation, for all of history, for all of eternity. The extent of God's love and desire for the relationship with man is demonstrated on a blood-stained cross in a small, insignificant spot in the world. Where his desire for relationship with man is demonstrated by the price he's willing to pay to help that helpless man with no escape. This, this is the pinnacle of God's glory. That God showed his great love for sending us Christ, his only son, to die for us while we were still sinners. To die for us while we were still sinners. It's not enough that he's God, which we can't really fathom. It's not enough that he's just God, totally holy, totally pure, totally self-sustaining, eternal, all-knowing, everywhere, all the time, Omnipresent, um, you know, I mean, all the omnis that he is. It's not enough that he's God. It's not enough that that's his glory. It's not enough that he created the universe with the power of his words. That's not his glory. It's not enough that he still loved mankind, but he says, it's too bad you're in a predicament that you can't fix. No, the glory came when the king paid the penalty for the subjects who owed him.
their lives, and he set them free. The glory is that the king gave what was most precious to him to buy back rebellious creation. I've said it before, but there's not a one of us in here who would give up our own born child to keep alive another one of us. And yet he did for people who didn't care about him. How do we respond to such love? I'm telling you, like, this is what I said to you the other day. That people argue, theologians love to argue, is it grace or is it works? If we are raptured by the holiness of God and by the great extent he went to to redeem us to himself, we would understand that works is the only thing we could do to demonstrate our affection and our love for him. And that discussion would be largely mute. When we, when we come to the place of understanding this, it is, it is why the, the saints of old laid down their lives so quickly because they understood the great cost that the Father went to to bring them to adopt us into the family. Like I said recently, I said, you know, $25,000 for a young married couple to adopt a child seemed like a lot of money. It was not nothing compared to what Jesus did to adopt me and you into his family. Nothing. And when we understand that, that should be that motivation. That should be that stuff that wells up in us. And it says, I will serve at all costs. I will do whatever you ask of me. Send me, lead me, put me there. My comfort is of no value compared to Jesus and his death for me. So that's why the saints of old went places and watched one baby after another die in a jungle and considered it worthy to do that. That's why the saints of old went to places. That's why the saints of old in quote-unquote civilized countries in Europe died burning at the stake because they translated the word of God because it was worthy. That's what rises up in us when we embrace this truth. And it captures our heart. And we realize that there's nothing I could give back to him that, that is even incomparable, that even compares to the beauty and the glory of Jesus dying on my behalf. And yet, I'll make an attempt at this. There is an old song. All you old people will remember this. All you young people will go, okay, that's nice. All right? And to, and to spare all of our young people the agony of listening to old people sing, I didn't do the video or the song, just the words, okay? This is an old um, song from the, when I say old, it's like the 80s. It's not like it was 1950 or 60 or something, you know? But it's a, a Sandy Patty song that was very moving when she sang it. 
And she says, the finest words I know could not begin to tell just what Jesus really means to me. For he is more than wonderful than my mind could conceive. He's more than wonderful than my heart can believe. He goes beyond my highest hopes and my fondest dreams. He's everything that my soul could ever long for, everything that he promised, and so much more. He's more than amazing. He's more than marvelous. He's more than miraculous could ever be. He's more than wonderful. That's what Jesus is to me. I stand amazed when I think that the king of glory would come to lie within the heart of man. Oh, I marvel just to know he really loves me when I think of who he is and who I am. For he's more wonderful than my mind could conceive. He is more wonderful than my heart could believe. He goes beyond my highest hopes and my fondest dreams. He's everything that my soul ever longed for. Everything he's promised and so much more. He's more than amazing, more than marvelous, more miraculous than, than miraculous could ever, ever be. He's more than wonderful. And that's what Jesus is to me. Lord, today, our small, finite, Minds that are caught up with our chores and our shopping lists and our ball games and what we're wearing and all these other things. All that stuff will burn someday, but your word will not. And you love us. You are more than miraculous. You are more than marvelous. You are more than wonderful. May our hearts be captured in you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.